0: Hello, friends of Theology in the Raw. Thanks for joining me on this episode. What you're going to hear is a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago at Park Hill Church in San Diego, California. My good friend, Evan Wickham, recently planted a church in, uh, I guess it would be, well, it's actually in the Point Loma area um, in uh, northern uh, San Diego, and I was down in San Diego with my son. We had a weekend away. We were hanging out and uh, Evan's like, hey, why don't you come over and preach at my church? And I said, okay, let's do it. So I preached a sermon on loving your enemies at Park Hill Church, and what you're going to listen to is the audio of that sermon. Now, uh, the sound quality is not um, the best. It was uh, a big, tall kind of roof, a little echoey inside, and I was using a handheld mic. Uh, it sounded great when you're listening to it in the – in the uh, if you're listening to it live, I think it did. It sounded good to me, but then again, I was the one speaking, so what do I know? But uh, it's, a, it's a little echoey, a little tinny, if that makes any sense, but I really wanted to put this up on the podcast. I think you'll enjoy it. It gives a good kind of overview of my thoughts on loving your enemies and and I guess my thoughts on nonviolence as the general rhythm of Christianity. Now, I think sometimes when we talk about nonviolence, we can get lost into, you know, various scenarios like the killer at the door who's busting in to slaughter your family. Um, or we can, uh, you know, ask other, what about this? What about that situations? And, you know, my main concern is not really with what I call absolute nonviolence, although I do hold to that position. Um, I that That's not my main concern. My main concern is that I do believe that there is a... a Profoundly militaristic spirit that pervades evangelicalism that we are not known for loving our enemies, that we are not known for having a nonviolent rhythm woven throughout evangelical Christianity in America. That's my main concern. My main concern isn't really with these sort of, what about this, what about that uh, theoretical situations. Um, it, it's with the general rhythm of Christianity. So I think the sermon captures a lot of my heart on that topic. So without further ado, here is my sermon on loving your enemies at Parkville Church. It's, it's an honor to be at Park Hill. I've known about you guys longer than you've known about you guys. <laughs> when this was just like an idea in Evan's mind, we were sitting there three years ago in Portland, and, and you were like, here's my vision for starting a church. And I remember a, a mutual friend of ours was like, ah, I don't know if that'll work. What about this? What about that? What about this? And you're like, I'm going to do this. We're going to do this. This is something Jesus has laid on my heart. And we're going for it. And three years later, here, here we are. This is really Amazing, amazing. Probably the most in-shape church I've ever seen. <laughs> Churches don't look like this in the Midwest, by the way. I've lived in Ohio, and you guys are really... We just keep going with that? Is that... Okay. Um, in, in 1999, I had chased a baseball dream down to Chula Vista, California. I grew up in... Fresno, California and uh, had been raised in, a, in, in kind of a Christian home but wasn't really living it out. Went to Chula Vista, California and for a young 18, 19 year old kid who's not really walking with the Lord to be living on your own and the greater San Diego area was not really good for me. And I spiraled just downhill and I remember in spring of 1999 I was faced with the decision of either living out this verbal confession that I had, but was but my, a life that didn't reflect it. I, I had to either decide, am I going to live this stuff out, or, the true story, or am I going to move to PB and just live it up? Because that's where I used to hang out. We'd, we'd commute from Chula Vista to get involved in all kinds of debauchery and PB, I came this close to making that latter decision to just to bend my confession around the way I was living, which was not like Jesus at all. But God broke into my life in 1999 through a friend, a, a simple friend who just said, you say you're a Christian, but you're not living like it. And I made the decision through the power of Jesus to go full on into this Christian thing and uh, haven't looked back since. So this is really a cool, time for me to be back in the hometown where Jesus met me in really special ways. I wanna read to you the text that was, in many ways, given to me. I, I mean, this is the one date that I can come down and speak at Park Hill Church. This happened to be the text that you were going through, right? I mean, this is not, this wasn't manipulated, I don't think. It was, this is just the way it worked out. This happens to be a text that has been a challenging passage and in many ways a life-altering, life-shaping passage in, in my life. So let's read it together. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. I want to read the whole thing and then I want to come back and unpack, not, not every, every single word here, we don't have time to go through every single word, but, but unpack kind of the gist, the thrust, the rhythm, it's flowing throughout this passage. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other, two, other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the, the sun to rise on evil and good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we pray that that your spirit would invigorate our hearts, that it would convict us and bend our values around your word rather than bending the word around our values. In Christ, let me pray, amen. This is a tough passage. <laughs> it raises a lot of questions. And uh, if I can be totally honest, it's, it's, it is a bit ironic that I am going to speak on this passage and and try to unpack what I think Jesus is is getting at here because, I mean, there's nothing in my, if I can say my emotional, or if I could even say my political, or even religious upbringing, that agrees with much of what is written here. You see, I I was raised, and I don't know where it came from, but it's just this sort of subculture, or just raised breathing the air that says that you should destroy your enemy. That if somebody slaps you on the cheek, you cut his heart out with a dull spoon and go after his family. <laughs> I remember growing up as a kid, and, I, and for some reason I hated Germans. I was raised on a steady diet of World War II films. Then somebody took me aside and says, "Well, you know, you're actually part German, right? (laughs) Which I am." And there's this thing called the Cold War, and now the Russians are the bad guys. So I started hating Russians. I remember cheering for all of my might during Desert Storm in in 1991 because I was was so excited that I got to live through a war where we get to annihilate the bad guys. In 2011, when 9-11 hit, I remember thinking, let's just nuke the entire Middle East and just, just, let's just wipe everything clean out there because that's what the terrorists, list. oh sure, there'll be some collateral damage, you know, some babies that will be destroyed, who cares? Let's just go overpower with more excessive power. I can never even imagine, and this is the thing: like I was raised again with, with kind of a Christian environment, and in my mind, it was unChristian to love your enemies, and not destroy them. Now, you know, loving your enemies was only for you know pacifists and pansies and pot smoking hippies who couldn't win a fight anyway. A real Christian, a real manly man, a real godly man destroys his enemy and then goes after their family to prove a point. But over the last several years, I've been truly confronted and challenged and in some ways compelled by the counterintuitive, countercultural nature of the Christian life. Where, where, where there is an otherworldly power that moves through perceived weakness. You, you cannot read the Gospels and, and walk away being challenged by the very bewildering things that Jesus says. And so this morning, I wanna, um, let, me, let me just some of you are going to really resonate with what I'm saying. I, so for some of you, I may I may be preaching to the choir. Some of you may be like, "Ah, oh, man, that's challenging. I need to think about that." Some of you may, may be really resistant to what I'm saying. And here, as a guest speaker, my job is not to say, "Thou shalt must believe this or do that or whatever." Here's my challenge to you: is I'm going to read a lot. Of, we're going to go through a lot of Bible today. I'm going to I'm going to hide behind the scriptures. I will make a lot of comments that try to draw out the meaning of the text. So here's, um, you need to wrestle with and consider and think through the, the interpretive things that I'm going to say. And you're allowed to wrestle with that. And you're allowed to kind of say, oh, is this really what this text means? Oh, is this really how it applies to today? But you're not al- if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to disagree with the Bible. So I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. You're not allowed to disagree with that if you, if you claim to be a Christian. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, you could disagree with the entire thing. That's just what it means to not be a Christian, right? So, <laughs> but but with, the, with the way I'm gonna draw out some of these passages, you're allowed to wrestle with that. And you can email Evan afterwards and say, don't ever have this guy back, or hey, let's consider these things, or whatever. So, so what is Jesus talking about here? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That that actually comes from the Bible. That comes from the book of Exodus. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's called the the law of retaliation. Now, in the ancient context, the, the point behind eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was designed to limit the level of retaliation that somebody could legally take to somebody that attacked them. Now, in the, old, in the ancient world, the context was, was very, um, it, it wasn't trying to give a, a, a free license to retaliate. It was trying to limit the level of payback somebody could take. Because in the ancient context, if somebody poked out your eye, you can poke out both of his eyes and maybe cut off his ears. You you, you pay back excessively if somebody harmed you. So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth in the Old Testament context was trying to limit that. So the spirit of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth was to limit the level of violent retaliation, not to allow for it, not to encourage it. Okay, you see that? So I think Jesus is going back to the original spirit of the original law, and he takes it to an even further extreme. And he goes on to say, do not resist the evil person. Now that... That sounds almost theologically incorrect. And it might be if you don't understand what Jesus means by the term resist. The term resist, and mean, not that it matters, but that's the Greek word, just so you know that I know what I'm talking about. I, don't you, I, I hate when preachers throw around Greek words and just like, oh, look at me. But this one, this one actually matters. Like enthiste me is often used in the Old Testament to refer to violent military resistance, like like killing your enemy. It's used throughout Josephus, first century Jewish writer. Um, whenever Josephus was, would write about kind of first century revolts, or people would like try to slaughter the, the Romans who were oppressing them, he would use this word. So, so it has built in it, not just resisting categorically, but a certain kind of violent resistance. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he, he, the dude's too, so brilliant, he, like, trans, he like made his own translation of the New Testament. And he translates this verse, do not use violence to resist evil. And I I think that's that's what draws out the, the main point that Jesus means here when he says don't resist evil. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying don't stand against evil. He's not saying don't confront evil. He's not saying don't oppose evil. I don't even think he's saying don't resist evil in the sense of the English term resistance, which is just very broad. He's addressing a certain kind of resistance. There are worldly ways of resisting evil. And then there are Christian ways of resisting evil. And in order to draw this out, Jesus gives five examples of what this nonviolent resistance uh, could look like. Now, these aren't exhaustive. And I don't even think they're, they're meant to be kind of a legalistic like prescription of here's five commands that are, are really the main point. Jesus is just kind of giving a, a if I can pun intended, a shotgun of examples <laughs> of, of here's what this could look like in your context. So the focus isn't so much on the individual things he's going to give here. But these are just kind of illustrating what, what this could look like on the ground. But the main point is don't violently resist evil, which is connected to loving your enemies, which we'll get to in a second. So, for instance, just a few of these, you know, uh, examples that he gives. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other also. And this one's really tough. <laughs> really tough. Um, But again, it's underneath the overarching idea of don't violently resist evil. This is still a form of resisting evil. This is not passive cowardice, but aggressive, counterintuitive, nonviolent resistance. There's a story about Martin Luther King. He was given a speech one day, I forget the exact year, but he was on stage giving a speech and a Nazi walked forward, walked up on stage, and boom, decked Martin Luther King in the face. Martin Luther King stumbled back and then he stood up. Boom, got hit again, walked up, looked the man in the face, face to face, boom. And then finally the you know, people rushed the stage, got the guy, threw him to the ground, hauled him off to another room. They're ready to, you know, just call the authorities, or whatever. Martin Luther King comes in with a bloody face to the room and said, um, "We're not going to press any charges. You're, you're free to go, and you are, you're forgiven for everything that you have done. You, you can, you can go your way." Grabbed a bag of ice, <laughs> held it to his face, and walked up on stage and finished his speech. Let me tell you, there, there's no doubt. In anyone's mind in that room, who won the fight? You see? Opposing evil with nonviolence has power in perceived weakness. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat also. The coat is, 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 is this outer garment that was way more valuable than, than your shirt, okay? So, c- cause in that day, like the coat was is like a trench coat almost where you can, it, can, it can double as like you know, almost like a sleeping bag if you were found, you know, halfway on a journey and you had to sleep outside. The coat was like like super, super valuable. Here it's like someone wants to take something that's that's of lesser value, then give him something that is of more value to you. Go the extra mile, which is actually exactly what he says in the next verse. Uh, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In first century, it was common for the Roman soldiers who were occupying Israel. They had these huge heavy packs, and they would often make their subjects, in this case it would be Jews, to carry their very, very heavy pack to the next station about a mile away. It was, a, it was really a way of shaming the people that you're ruling over. And Jesus says, don't, don't, don't let that happen. They're not shaming you. You turn, you turn around to that person trying to shame you and you serve them and see what happens. And you take that pack, and after the guy's snickering and laughing and saying, All right, I'll take my pack back, you can say, You know what? I'll carry this with you for another mile. It doesn't make sense. The, the, these commands are designed not to make sense. The, these don't make sense. It looks like you're, you're losing. But in God's world, you're actually winning. It doesn't feel good, and and in the eyes of the world, you lose, but through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection, on behalf of his enemies, you win, because you've already won. Because Jesus is one. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father precisely because he chose to submit to a violent attack. He chose to suffer, and according to Philippians 2, it was because he suffered that God highly exalted him to reign above all kingdoms of the earth because he met violence with suffering. And he diffused it, he destroyed it, and he burst forth through the grave because he first suffered. There's perceived, there's strength in perceived weakness in God's kingdom. Service, service is authority in God's kingdom. Remember when Jesus knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples, including Judas? Took upon, took upon the form of a slave. He got down into a loincloth, knelt down and washed those dirty, grimy feet. And again, there is no question from anyone in that room that night who was in charge. This is not passiveness. This is not passiveness. This is cross-centered, cruciform, self-giving that manifests the power of heaven and it contains an otherworldly power that you will not know until you try it. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did that come from? Well, it it kind of has some Old Testament roots. Uh, Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't, Jesus didn't invent, love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus. There's no verse in the Old Testament that says hate your enemy, but uh, if you've read the Old Testament recently, (laughs) You, you, you can get that impression that we're supposed to hate, you know, Canaanites because they slaughtered them. And, and uh, the Psalms, the, the Psalms can be really violent. I remember reading the, the Psalms the other day to my kids. You know, there's that one, um, Psalm 139, you have knit my inward parts. You, you have formed me. And it's just a beautiful passage. But right after it says, you know, may you dash the enemy's children against the rocks. <laughs> my, my kids were like, um, um. I'm like, no, it's time for bed. You got to go. <laughs> And there's other psalms that come come kind of close to hating your enemy, at least least it feels like that, but the exact phrase hate your enemy isn't anywhere in in the Old Testament. But but it seems that this, um, because there is, you could kind of get the idea that maybe we can hate our enemy in the Old Testament. It seems that in the first century, it became kind of a Jewish slogan. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This this command becomes one of the most distinguishing features of Christianity for the first 300 years. This is not, the, the love your enemies is not some subsidiary. Virtue floating on the fringe of Christian behavior, Christian ethic. This becomes central to the Christian faith. I want to prove that to you, because that really is one of the most important things I'm going to say this morning, is that this love your enemy isn't just, well, okay, that's that's that verse over there. Yeah, it's kind of hard, but... Well, who's our enemy? And you kind of, you know, excuse it. This love your enemy becomes woven throughout the very fabric of Christianity. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. And there's, other, there's other important things, okay? But I'm saying that this is, a, is woven throughout the heart of what Christianity looks like. Jesus says in Luke 6, I'm just gonna go through a bunch of these, you know, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Curse you. pray for those who persecute you, and two more times in Luke 6, he says, you shall love your enemies. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Peter took out his sword and chopped off the dude's ear, remember, he's trying to arrest Jesus, he chops off the guy's ear, and Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. In Luke chapter nine, there were the, uh, Jesus and the disciples were going through the, the, the land of Samaria and they, they, were, they were rejected from the village. Like, nope, you can't stay here. And James and John pulled Jesus aside and says, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just consume them? Oh, sure, there'll be collateral damage, but hey, they rejected us. They deserve it. Let's just burn down the whole village because they treated us wrongly. Oh, that resonates, that resonates with some Christians I talk to and hear Christians talk about how we should treat our enemies. Let's burn down the whole village. Let's overpower power with power. And Jesus hands them a swift rebuke for their spirit. Before Pilate, on the night he was betrayed, he stood before Pilate, actually this is in the morning sometime a Friday and uh, the pilot hears that Jesus is a king and he gets a little nervous because in the first century the very idea of king meant overpowering others with military might the very idea of kingdom the very idea of the term kingdom and even salvation meant you achieved salvation you establish a kingdom through overpowering everybody else with more power Let's burn down the whole village and establish our kingdom. And before Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. Yes, I have a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that's very different from your kingdom, Pilate. Yes, I have a a kingdom, but it's very different from uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus when the, the Maccabees Overthrew the Greek overlords through excessive use of force. Yes, I have a kingdom, but it's very different from your kingdom, Pilate, because you overpowered power with power. And look, you got a lot of power going on here. The Roman military machine was invincible. My kingdom's very different. Oh, I could call down the authorities if I wanted to. Don't you take my non-resistance as weakness. Oh, I I can make a phone call right now and wipe out everybody because I'm not going to do that because my kingdom is not of this world. It contains a different power, a more powerful power that's going to end in crucifixion, in absorbing the violence that you're dishing out. And I'm going to burst through the grave and establish my kingdom on earth. And it's going to look very different than anything else you have ever seen. It's going to contain foot washing servants who are going to love their enemies and not kill them. And it's through that that we are going to conquer the world. Jesus' last words on the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Some form of enemy love was also shot through the rest of the New Testament. I keep using violent metaphors, shot through. It's just just in me, it's in my blood. (laughs) First Peter chapter two: To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His footsteps. So some people could say, "Oh yeah, you know Jesus, He had to get crucified because He had to die in atoning death for the sins of the world." And that's true. That's true. Jesus was unique in, in ha- He had to get crucified. And some people say, "Therefore, we don't need to follow Jesus' uh, life in that in that regard." But Peter, First Peter, disagrees. He says, yes, it, yes, it contains atoning, atoning value for sinners and it forgives our sins, but it also, Jesus also laid down a pattern for us to follow. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. This is first Peter 2, 21. That you should follow in his footsteps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Paul in Romans 12 repeats all kinds of stuff from the words of Jesus. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. See, that's also an important piece here. We can... Exhibit perceived weakness. We can be defeated because we have the ultimate hope that God will dish out perfect justice in the end. Well, we don't need to take justice against our enemies in this day and age. God will settle that in the end. The Book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter ten. this is this is, I don't know what this author was smoking here, but I mean this passage is so counterintuitive. Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 32, he's, he's writing to probably Jewish Christians in the first century, in first century Palestine, and, and after Christianity had been around for a couple decades, there was a lot of persecution from Jewish people to the, the Christians, a lot of animosity, and the author, whoever it is, um you know, is encouraging them in their suffering. He says in chapter 10, verse 32, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an, and an abiding one I, that, that, <laughs> that that is so un-American <laughs> who joyfully accepts the plundering of our property since not because oh, I couldn't do anything about it he had a bigger gun. I tried to stop him, but he got away, ran away with my flat screen. No, no. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you have a better possession. We have a better hope. This world is not our home. We are exiles in Babylon. If the Babylonians want to come and take their stuff, we're like, it's cool. We have a better possession and an abiding one. Stephen, in the book of Acts, echoes the words of Jesus. He says, do not hold the sin against them as he was getting stoned. Not smoking dope. I gotta clarify that in California. People in Idaho, where I'm from, know what I'm talking about. He was getting rocks thrown at him. Lord, forgive them of what they are doing. Revelation chapter five. I, I got it. Oh, man, this, okay. The book of Revelation Because some people say, oh, what about Revelation? I'm like, Revelation, the book of Revelation is, everything I'm saying, I think, is written throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, the book of Revelation is about a bunch of Christians conquering the world and conquering Satan through martyrdom. (laughs) In Revelation chapter five, verse five, John is as he sees this vision of heaven, a scene of heaven. The, the curtains are pulled back, and he looks, and in the context, everybody's weeping in heaven because there's a scroll. There's a scroll, and nobody has power to open the scroll. And, and there's a debate about what does a scroll represent. It's, it's got writing on the inside and outside, and, and a lot of scholars think that the scroll represents like the, the title deed of creation, Like, whoever can open the scroll has power and authority over all creation. And everybody's weeping because nobody has that power. But then steps forth a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And because he has conquered, he can open the scroll and break its seven seals. Now, when you think of lion, you think of a ravaging beast. King of the jungle, right? A powerful animal that crushes and destroys anything else, anyone else. And it says that he has conquered. The word conquer, it comes from the word where we get the word Nike. It's nikao. In fact, the noun is, is nike. Or, and it's, it's almost exclusively used of overpowering power with power. Of, of conquering others through destruction, through, through annihilating them. And here it says... This lion has conquered, but then, you know, John hears about the lion that is conquered, and then he turns around and he sees a slaughtered lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. This is one of the most profound sort of blending or mixing or offsetting metaphors of the. Power of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is this authority over all authorities. He is this powerful king like a lion and he has conquered. He has Nika'o. He has destroyed. How? By being a slaughtered lamb. Power in perceived weakness. He became a lion because he first became a slaughtering, a slaughtered lamb. In Revelation chapter 12, we get to participate in this. Revelation 12, verses 10 and following, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Don't you think those terms are awesome? Salvation, power, kingdom, authority. For the accuser, Satan, has been thrown down. He's been destroyed. He accuses people day and night. Jesus, with power and a kingdom and authority, bringing salvation, has destroyed Satan. And those who follow him have conquered, verse 11. How? By the blood of the Lamb. They conquered because Jesus was conquered by being defeated and it's through that suffering that he gained heavenly power and now reigns from on high. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb. We have conquered Satan because Jesus was submitted to death and by the word of our testimony because we loved our lives not even to death. Martyrdom. You know the first uh, 300 years of Christianity The early church actually believed this stuff and they lived it out. By the end of the first century, Christians made up 0.02% of the Roman Empire. 0.02%. That's a tiny fraction of Rome, the Roman Empire, that was committed to Jesus. And it's in the next 200 years, from about 100 to about 300 AD, they were brutally persecuted burned at the stake, torn apart by wild animals, eaten by lions, quartered by horses. You know what quartering is? They were literally grilled and toasted alive. They were skinned alive, crucified upside down like Saint Bartholomew. What I love about this is it wasn't just the dudes that were getting martyred. There were many women who went to the stake like Perpetua, this this famous female martyr, when the when the soldier was coming with the sword, she was tied up, coming with the sword, and he he was going for her throat, and he was he was about to miss. And Perpetua, this godly woman following Jesus, took the sword and redirected it to her heart, because she knew she knew that her death contained more power than her life. She knew that her death would actually expand the mission and further the kingdom of God. At the end of those 2, 200 years where Christians are brutally persecuted and killed, the church grew from .02% to 10% of the Roman Empire. You can kill us, you can torture us, you can, you can take our stuff, step on our toes, plunder our property, cause pain and suffering, but you cannot kill us. You cannot destroy us. You cannot stop the mission. Because God has infused this world, he's infused the kingdom with this weird ingredient of suffering that the more we suffer, the more God's kingdom overpowers the world. The more you kill us, the more you torture us, the more we grow. We're like a, Starfish, is that, is that good? Is that where you cut it off and it mul- uh, maybe, maybe, That was on the fly, okay? <laughs> the more you try to destroy us, the more power we get. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the early church, says Tertullian, early church father. You, you, know, what the, you know what the most quoted verse in the, in the early church was? The verse that they went to the most. The the John three sixteen of early Christianity was love your enemies. It's quoted twenty eight times by ten different authors in the first three hundred years of Christianity. It, it it was it was the favorite verse among early Christians. It was it was the first thing that came to mind when people when, when, when the Roman Empire thought about Christians. Oh, you heard about those Christians next door? Oh, They're having a house gathering. Oh, those Christians we just killed a couple the other day. What comes to mind? Love your enemies. That, that was that was a thing that 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 signified Christianity more than anything else. So my question to you is: Is that true today? When the world thinks of, let's just say, American Christianity, is the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, those are the people that love their enemies. I, it hasn't been in my experience. If you travel outside America, especially, and say, oh, when you think of American Christianity, do you think, do you think suffering and do you think, oh, those are the people that love their enemies? Now, now, some of you are thinking, okay, okay, let me just, I gotta clarify this. Some of you are thinking, okay, okay, but when do we get to kill the bad guys? <laughs> what about the guy breaking into my home? Dead set on killing my family. Can can I at least shoot her? Oh yeah, it's always a guy, right? (laughs) Look, my, my main, please hear me. My main point is not that we all need to become like pacifists. It's not my main point. I don't even think it's the main point of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, to be clear. Could there be space for violence as a last resort? Lesser to evils? Rare situations where somebody is coming, coming into your home just dead set on, on killing your family? He's got no moral agency. He's just, I'm gonna shoot and the only way you can stop him is by killing him. Go ahead, blow his head off. I'm not, I'm not here to argue that in these kind of, whatever, as a last resort. Here's my main point, the point I will take a bullet for. Nonviolent. Non retaliatory, counterintuitive, countercultural, sacrificial enemy love is, should be the dominant, most pervasive rhythm of evangelical Christianity. That should be the river that is flowing throughout the heart of evangelical Christianity, and yet, it's not. We clearly live in a culture where loving your enemies is absurd. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. There was a poll that went out in, in December of 2015, and it, it wanted to get kind of political perspectives, and it asked Democrats and Republicans. Uh, one of the questions on that poll was, should we, should we bomb Agrabah? Do you think we should bomb Agrabah? And 30% of Republicans says, yeah, I think, I think the right move here is to, is to bomb Agrabah. Um, 19% of dem- Democrats says, "Yeah, I think I think we should go ahead and bomb Agrabah." Agrabah is a made-up city in the cartoon Aladdin. We live in a country where a decent percentage of the poor, of its population is ready to bomb a city because it has an Arab-sounding name. That's frightening. You, you cannot get more polar opposite values than New Testament Christianity in, in terms of how to respond to evil or perceived evil or cartoon cities with Arab names. And what our culture says about how to treat our enemies. Andrew Bosovic is a Vietnam vet, he's a military historian, he's, he's not a Christian. He, he might be Roman Catholic, I think, I'm not, I'm not even sure. And he's a uh, world-renowned military historian who served in the military. He, he's very, he's not against military at all. I mean, every country needs a military, he's not against serving in the military, he served in the military, Vietnam vet. What he's, what he's troubled by is the over-fascination and misguided trust and hope in this massive, historically unprecedented military machine that we have here in America. And in a book titled The New American Militarism, where he says, I don't think this is healthy, this this over-fascination with military might, and he says in that book, and I quote, were it not for the support offered by several tens of millions of evangelicals, this kind of militarism in this country is inconceivable. I'm not talking about having a military. I'm not talking about serving in the military. I'm talking about a militaristic spirit that says the best way, the first way to conquer evil is by an aggressive use of worldly power. Jerry Farwell Jr., the the Christian leader of the largest Christian institution in the history of Christianity. That's a fact. He told his students to bring guns to chapel so that they can kill the Muslims before the Muslims kill us. So word to the wise, don't bring your Muslim friends to chapel at Liberty University. (laughs) I have to wonder if the values of American Christianity have been have trickled down and shaped our value system more than the countercultural, counterintuitive spirit of New Testament Christianity. And what's more is I feel it in my own life. There's not a day that wakes that I wake up when I don't feel the, the press and press the press and the pull of wanting to overcome my enemies with more power. And and so let me let me get this. Take this down to just real nitty gritty earthy stuff. Okay, so last summer, I've I've got this just this jerk of a neighbor, and um, he's one of these guys that his God is his private property. And I kid you not, if if his weed grows up over my fence and starts bending over my fence, and I cut it, he gets really upset. I can't believe you would just violate my private property. It's a weed it's coming over my fence my kids built this force this this tree fort and um it wasn't the most safest thing i gave him hammer and nails and said go for it it's just kind of how we parent you know they'll they'll figure it out and he comes out taking pictures of the fort like hey what are you doing man oh i don't one of your kids you know falling over my fence on my property and you know you might sue me you know He's more interested in being sued than my kid breaking their neck. He's taking pictures and all. That. He's, just, he's just a not nice person. I, I, I was going to go somewhere else, but um, one day my my rule, just rules and private property and you know my stuff and to get away from my stuff and and uh, we were walking our dog one day and, and we, we have a shock collar around him. I don't. This is how Idahoans do it. I don't know if that's like horrific if you're an animalist shock. I don't know. Is that we. We don't use it a lot, but he, you know. So we don't put him on a leash. We have a shot caller. And apparently there's a law that you're supposed to have him on a leash. And it's like, come on, it's Idaho. We don't really obey laws up there. (laughs) And my wife and kids were taking the dog on a walk and he stands out front. Put your dog on a leash! Put your dog on a leash! I wasn't there. I I was on a run. I was running, screaming at my wife and children. I've got three daughters and a son sitting over here my wife's kind of a fighter. She, she yells back, trim your trees because he's has got overgrown trees. <laughs> So I go home from my run. I'm all sweaty. And uh, my wife says, hey, the neighbor was like yelling at me about putting my dog on a leash. And I was furious. Furious. And this surge of adrenaline goes through me. I make a beeline to his front door. He's out there doing some stuff. And I got up in his grill. I didn't physically use violence, but I dismantled his humanity and lost my Christianity for about five minutes Face to face. Don't you dare talk to my wife that way, you coward. You have something to say to me. You come to me. Do you understand me? Well, she put my... I don't care. I don't give a rat's. I was swearing. I was. I'm not a pastor, so I can swear. (laughs) My goal was to dismantle his humanity and overpower with verbal power. I came back. I was shaking. It took about a week for that to wear off. And then I was like, he doesn't know Jesus. Was that at all even close to the gospel? I don't like the fact that he talked to my wife that way. There's gotta be a more Jesus way to go about that conversation. So I got this idea, he loves to work with wood, and I'm like, I'm going to go to Lowe's and I'm going to buy like a $50 gift card and give it to him and say, you know what, I'm really sorry I talked to you like that. And every time I drove by Lowe's, I was like, ah, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> I drive by again. Ah, I'll do it tomorrow. I even told my kids I was going to do this, you know, and they got all excited. Kids love, they, they. Christianity is just way more easy. They're just like, yeah, of course you should do that, dad. I can't believe you yell at them, you know, like, Yes, I'd come home, dad, did you do it yet? Did you buy him the card? No, no, no. And then I was away speaking last summer, July, in Denver, and I was talking to my wife, and uh, she says, hey, I want you to know that um, the, the ambulance just came and they, they hauled away our neighbor in a body bag. He was working on his little gazebo he was making and he fell flat on his back he died, has a heart attack and, and he died I've uh, I think I've cried, I'm not a crier to my, own, to my own fault, again I was raised with this thing that men don't cry, that's not biblical okay, it's just it's in me it's hard for me to cry and I, I bawled my eyes out screaming out to God, why, why was I so quick to overpower power with power and so slow to respond with this otherworldly grace and forgiveness that would have been way more effective and had way more power than screaming in his face? So some of you have a neighbor, a friend, a relative, An enemy. Maybe it's not an uppercase E enemy, but maybe it's a lowercase E enemy. Don't delay. I I, I still wake up with this why didn't I just choose obedience? Why did I wait? Don't wait. Because he who loves their enemy is no longer left with enemies, they're left only with neighbors. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for loving us when when we were enemies. Thank you for not destroying us when we were enemies. Thank you for loving us when we were enemies. Thank you for dying for us, to submitting to power when we were enemies. Thank you for loving us with the most perfect countercultural, counterintuitive enemy love. God, give us the strength of your spirit to echo the rhythm of your son.